continuing our study through Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. We're going to look at chapter 5, verses 16 through 26 this morning. Sure, many of you have seen the new movie, Spider-Man 3. And Peter Parker must choose between the black suit where... He puts it on and he becomes selfish and arrogant and vengeful and mean. Or the spidey suit, his normal red and blue suit. And when he puts that on, he's others-minded. He's humble. He's forgiving. He's loving. And there's this battle going on between the two Spider-Men. If you haven't seen the movie, it's a great movie. It's a great picture, an illustration of the same battle that exists in our lives as Christians To steal the title from Wayne Taylor's book on the subject, we are all facing a civil war within. A war that is going on in our life, much like the civil war from the 19th century where you had the Confederate army versus the Union army and they were battling over slavery and the Confederates, of course, wanted to keep slavery going. It was a huge part of the economy And they were battling for that. And there is this battle going on in our own lives. And the flesh wants to keep you in slavery. Wants to keep you under bondage. And the Spirit wants to set us free. In fact, we've seen that in our study of Galatians. That we have liberty in Christ. Freedom. What does John chapter 8 tell us? That whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We have freedom in Christ. And so, what we're going to look at is this civil war within. This battle that is raging. This battle between the flesh and the Spirit. And picking up from his statement in verse 13, where Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You've been called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so we've been given freedom, but we shouldn't use our freedom as a license for sin. We should use our freedom as a way in which we serve Christ and we love other people. And we have the fruit of the Spirit flowing forth from our life. And so as we... Look at these verses this morning. I want us to notice three things. If you're a note taker, we're going to see the conflict. Then we're going to see the contenders. And then we're going to see the conquest, which is just a fancy word for victory. It starts with C, so I wanted to use that instead of victory. But the conflict, the contenders, and the conquest. The conflict, verses 16 through 18. Paul says, I say then... Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He doesn't say, try really hard to be self-disciplined. He says, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And so Paul begins to talk about this 
battle. And at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul tells us to stand fast. Verse 1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty that you have in Christ. Now he tells us to walk in the Spirit. Stand, walk. Our understanding of our standing in Christ determines the success that we will have in our walk with Christ. When we understand who we are in Jesus, it will help us to have a successful walk with Jesus. When we understand that we've been clothed with a robe of righteousness, then we don't want to take that robe of righteousness and go out and slop the pigs of this world. See, when you understand that you are holy, that you're not working toward holiness, but from a place of holiness. See, there's a big difference. We're not working toward it. We already have it. And as a result of already having it, it should then spill out into our practice, into our daily life. Just like when you put on those nice clothes, you don't want to go out and feed the horses or, you know, mow the yard. You want to keep those things nice. It's just like when you get a new pair of shoes, you know, you, you want to keep it nice at least for a little while. Keep, you know, you don't even want to walk through the dirt or anything else. And then after a while, you know, they get some dirt on them. They get a little tear. They get stained. And you think, ah, it's not that big of a deal. And I wonder if in our spiritual life, if maybe we've sort of gotten used to just being dirty and it's not that big of a deal to us anymore. And it ought to be. And so the conflict, the flesh versus the spirit, Paul says there's a battle. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. They are contrary to one another. They're not friends. They're enemies. And the flesh is a powerful force in your life, powerful enough that you do not do the things that you wish. And Paul details this further in Romans chapter 7, where he says, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And I don't know about you, but I relate to that. Because my feet barely hit the floor in the morning, and I'm relating to the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the things that I do want to do, I end up not doing. Paul says it's an intense battle. In fact... He gets to the end of that chapter in Romans and he says, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who's given us the victory through Jesus Christ. If you've been walking with the Lord more than about five minutes, you know that there is a battle going on. See, there's no battle for the unbeliever. They've just lost. They can have no victory at all because they have to give in to the flesh. It's just sort of who they are. But as believers, when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, there's a battle. Now there's the flesh and the spirit and they're warring against each other. And Paul highlights and details these contenders in verses 19 through 23. We've seen the conflict. We understand that in general there is a conflict going on in our life. But now Paul wants to detail 
and describe these contenders for us. Who's battling? The flesh, the spirit. But just like in a boxing match, at the beginning they say, in this corner, wearing the red trunks, weighing in at however many pounds. And in this corner. And why do they do that? So that you know who's who. You got the red trunks, you got the blue trunks. Mike Tyson wore black trunks. You could relate to who was who you knew. And Paul does that for us here. He relates to us and describes for us the fruits of the flesh versus the fruits of the Spirit. And he says, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, it's not really hard to determine what a fruit of the flesh is. It's pretty evident. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's just those things that are opposed to God. Those things that come out of a wicked heart. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitfully wicked. It's deceitfully wicked because a lot of times we don't realize how wicked it is. We think there's a little bit of goodness there. In fact, it's a sewage pit of sin. It's a cesspool of things that are opposed to God. There's nothing good in our hearts. We have to understand that. Only Jesus can redeem our heart and make it into something valuable and good and that is pleasing to Him. And so Paul lists 17 fruits of the flesh for us in these verses here, 19 through 21. And then he will describe nine fruits of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. So let's look at these fruits of the flesh. The contender number one in this corner, wearing the red trunks. Maybe they're black trunks, actually. And the first thing he says is adultery. Now, some manuscripts, some better manuscripts, don't include the word adultery. They just have the second word, fornication. Basically, the word there is pornea. There's two types of sexual sin that Paul sort of highlights here. Adultery, fornication. Semantics, really. It's all inclusive of sexual sin, but we delineate it to mean adultery is sexual sin. Activity when you're married outside the covenant of marriage. And so if you're married and you have sex with somebody who's not your husband or wife, that's adultery. We understand that. And then he says fornication, which we would describe as sexual activity amongst single people, period, outside the covenant of marriage. Now, that word pornea, it can describe any type of sexual sin. Homosexuality, bestiality, pornography, adultery, incest. It can describe any of those types of sin. And we are living in a society that is saturated with adultery and fornication. Saturated. It's celebrated on TV. It is 
everywhere. It sells products that have nothing to do with sex. Toothpaste and sex, I don't know how they, well, maybe they go together. You know, it's good to have good breath, I guess. But you, you, <laughs> there's just a lot of things that you wonder, what does that have to do with it? You know, I remember one, Uncle Ben's Rice. They had a whole commercial that was like very sexual in nature. And it was like, Uncle Ben's Rice. I mean, what does that have to do with sex? But we are living in a society that is saturated with it. And you know what? You used to have to go out to get that stuff. But now it can be brought right into your home through the cable, through satellite television that has every channel under the sun, through the Internet. You used to have to, you know, subscribe to a magazine. And, you know, maybe you didn't want to do that because... Your wife would find out about it or, or the neighbor would see, you know, uh, or you'd have to go down to one of those red light district kind of shops and people didn't do that so much, you know, normal people. But now it's right in your home. And so we have to take very serious action. The Bible says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent must take it by force. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It was very extreme language to say, do what it takes. We've got to do what it takes, and especially men, to protect ourselves. The Internet is a huge trap. Millions of men are trapped in sexual addiction because of the Internet. And I would venture to guess that there are some of us in this room today, this morning, who are struggling with that. And you know what? You need help. You need to get out of it. You need to be accountable. You need to get a filter on your Internet. You need to talk to somebody. I've got filters on all my Internets. You know what? It's kind of a hassle because I can't access certain sites, you know, to say, nope, can't go there. What do you mean I can't go there? This is a normal site. It just maybe. You know, a place where a photo bucket, for example, can't go there. But you know what? That's worth it. You guys, we've got to take extreme measures. If it means canceling the cable, if it means canceling your Internet, do what it takes. Get, get the help that you need. Get the, the accountability in place. Sexual sin is huge. And it's not just among men. Actually... Studies are showing that, that many women are addicted to pornography. And it's not just pornography, of course, it's adultery, it's fornication, it's all sorts of things. And it, we're not safe in marriage, we know that. We have to protect ourselves. And if, we're, if you're living in that kind of a situation, you need to get out of it. The works of the flesh are evident, adultery, fornication, uncleanness he talks about here. This is moral and spiritual defilement. It refers really to a person who has so given themselves over to sin that they're just defiled. And, and you've seen those people. Even movie stars. You think about Paris Hilton. 
just a name that comes to my mind. A person who basically is just given herself over. And it's not normal to be that easy. And, and yet she's proud of it. it. You think about the other people maybe in your life who have just so given themselves over that they're just defiled, they're unclean. They don't even have a conscience anymore. The word lewdness, it refers to obsessive behavior done in excess. People say, well, I have an addictive personality. You know what? We all do. It's called the flesh. And if you give into it, if you give into those things, you will become addicted to those things, obsessed with those things. And it can be anything. It can be sex. It can be food. How many people? We don't talk about that a lot. We talk about sex. We talk about drugs. But what about food? The Bible says that that overeating is a sin as well. And if you have a problem in that area, it's just as sinful as anything else. And this is obsessive behavior done in excess. See, it's, it's giving yourself over to addictions. And you've got to be careful. You, you've got to not allow those things to become and have such a grip on your life. And like I said, these things are so much more accessible now than they were before. I mean, you used to have to go to like a smoky casino to gamble. Now you can just get online and you can spend all of your money. They'll gladly take it. And people are neglecting their families, not paying their bills, trying to get rich quick, and they're going broke, and they're addicted to gambling. There are gambling anonymous groups now. It's a problem. So any obsessive behavior. He says idolatry. This is anything that would take the place of God in your life. You know, we often think of idolatry like the little figurines, little statue, you know. I don't struggle with that. Well, who does in America? I mean, let's be honest. I'm not real tempted to go out and buy little figurines and worship them. But we've got lots of things that we make idols in our life. Careers, hobbies, goals. Cars, houses, they become idols. And we've got to be careful that we're not allowing anything to replace God in our life. That nothing is more important than Him. If there is something more important, then it's an idol. And it can be a relationship. You have to put Jesus number one. And you have to be honest with yourself. Is He really number one in my life? Sorcery. The word is pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy. It refers to the use of mind-altering drugs that were used in religious practices that would actually open themselves up to the demonic realm. They didn't understand that's what they were doing, but that's what it did. They thought it was helping them to worship whatever they were worshiping, but in fact, it was opening their heart up to the demonic realm. And that's why drugs and demonic activity are often linked. I remember in 
junior high school watching this video about LSD and PCP and, you know, it was the whole, you know, do not do drugs, dare to say no campaign, you know, and, and they would, they would have us watch these films because these people were nuts that were on this stuff. They would just be like beating their heads against telephone poles. There would be like ten cops beating them, literally, with clubs. And they're just tossing them off like rag dolls. What is that? It's the demonic realm. They've opened themselves up to demons. And so demonic activity and drugs go hand in hand. But sorcery would refer to that use of mind-altering drugs, and it's a problem. It's huge. Huge problem in our society. It's a huge problem in this community. If you talk to the, to the cops in this community, 90% of what they do centers around meth. If it's theft, if it's, you know, domestic violence, if it's rape, if it's sexual abuse of some kind, oftentimes drugs are playing a huge part of that. If you get robbed in Prineville, it's pretty much certain that it was due to drugs. Some, somebody needed their fix and they, and they robbed you. It's a small town. It's not a lot of cat burglars here. There's people addicted to meth that want to get their fix. That's the deal. Sorcery. It says hatred. This is a bitterness of the heart that devalues another person. Just hating somebody. Loathing them. Having bitterness toward them. If, if that's in your heart, you've got to let Jesus heal you of that. It'll ruin you. Contentions. This is strife that arises in, in relationships. It's generally from self-centeredness and a hatred for others. This contention, these strifes. He says jealousies. This is a self-centeredness that wants control of other people. And there's a, a normal, God-given jealousy in marriage. We, we should be jealous for our spouse. In other words, you know, nobody should be hitting on our wives. Nobody should be flirting with our husbands. You know, and we would be jealous of that. And that's normal. But I think guys struggle with this more because we're just prideful jerks. But, you know... You get this controlling kind of mentality that, you know, you want to know every dime your wife is spending. You want to know everywhere she's going. You, you limit her activities. You limit her friends. And that's just weird. And if you're doing that, guys, you need to, you need to knock it off. You need to have some, some security in who you are as a man and some security in who you are in Christ. Let your wife be who she is and give her some freedom it'll be you'll be amazed at how it'll change your relationship don't be possessive you know like a little kid you know this is mine you know that's that's jealousy that's jealousy we we should have we should have hearts that want to share hospitable hearts hearts that that want to give he says wrath this is just sudden outbursts of anger. 
And we all can have these. And I think some people probably struggle with it more because they've given into it. More and more. And the more you give into it, the easier it is. And pretty soon you're just flying off the handle at everything. Throwing stuff and kicking the dog. and You know, maybe, maybe hitting your wife. Maybe hitting your husband. And these outbursts of wrath are absolutely unacceptable. And we have to, we have to say no to those things. When you, when you have that rage building up within you, you need to channel it differently than maybe the way you're doing it. If you're punching holes in the walls and your dog's afraid of you, it might be time to, to take a, a hard look at yourself. Selfish ambition. This is behavior that does not take into account the harm that may come upon others through self-centered goals. It just says, this is what I want, and I don't care how I get it. I don't care who I step on in the process. Selfish ambition. Dissensions. This refers to division, discord, in relationships. And then he talks about heresies. This is sort of the natural progression from these divisions. And it was what was happening in the churches of Galatia where these Judaizers were saying, look, you don't want to listen to Paul. You want to listen to us. We have a deeper truth. So they were dividing the church and then they were making people follow them. That's heresies. It's factions. It's drawing people unto yourself. It's saying, we, we've got the market on the truth. It's little clicks. Dividing people off instead of being open to everyone. It talks about envy. Envy is that emotion, that lust for what other people have. The Bible says that envy is like rottenness to your bones. Because it begins to eat you up. See, it starts with, wow, then neighbor just got the new Hummer, would like to have that. And then it turns into, you know, I never really did like that guy. He doesn't even work that hard. And why does he get all this stuff? You know, or, or maybe, it's a, maybe it's a brother. Maybe it's a family member who just sort of lucked into success in life and, and, and you're just sort of ticked off about that. You worked hard. I remember... You know, going to Bible college with with a lot of guys who didn't study and, you know, didn't have the heart for God that I have, you know. And then later I would find out that guy got a church handed to him. He He's a youth pastor. He's getting paid. Meanwhile, I'm scrubbing floors at Costco, just working my fingers to the bone, you know. And I'm thinking, I'm smarter than that guy. I know I'm a better Bible teacher than him. That guy was a screw-off in school. And you can begin to have a bitterness and envy. And you can't let that take root in your life. The Lord knows what's good for you. The Lord knows what's best. He knows exactly where you need to be. And so be content. See, that's really where the bottom line is, is contentment. Just being content with what you have. Don't be envious of other people's things and belongings. Other people's positions. 
Be content with where God has you in this life. And then murders. This is the final act of hatred and anger where you would take someone's life. But you know, we don't have to murder somebody by blowing their brains out or stabbing them. We can murder people with our words too. And how many people are just sort of walking shells of themselves because of the verbal abuse that they've received? Maybe from a parent, maybe from a spouse, maybe from a co-worker or a boss. And they basically just have no confidence and, and no joy and happiness at all because somebody has just destroyed them with their words. And parents, be careful. Be careful what you say to your kids. Don't tear your kids down. Don't be such a critic. I, I have a habit of doing that. Just sort of seeing, you know, yeah, that's really good, Caitlin, but if you would only have done this, that's not good. Build your kids up. Tell them how much you love them. Tell them that you love them even when they're bad. I tell my daughter that all the time. You know what? I love you even when you're bad. Don't tear your kids down. Don't murder people in your life with your words. Drunkenness. This is coming under the controlling influence of alcohol. Now, the Bible does not prohibit drinking. In our society, we kind of have this idea that if you're a Christian, it means you don't drink at all. And, and the Bible doesn't prohibit drinking. The Bible prohibits drunkenness. In fact, Jesus made wine at a wedding. People say, well, that was a different kind of wine. It was watered down. Where do we find that? I don't know where we find that. That sounds cool, but it's Proverbs talks about not being drunk with wine. So if it was a problem, I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't been drunk on grape juice lately. You know, there's got to be some alcoholic content there. And so it wasn't grape juice. It was wine. And in fact, the host of the wedding said, man, normally you put out the, the best first and everybody gets kind of liquored up. Then you put out the cheap stuff. But Jesus put out the good stuff at the end. He was blown away by that. But clearly drunkenness is a sin. And so if you're a person that likes to have a beer or to have a glass of wine, I think there's a couple things that you need to be aware of. First of all, your motive. Why are you doing it? I remember my mom, after we got saved, quit drinking wine. She used to drink wine every night when she got home. She was a bus driver, you know, just stressed out to the max. All these kids screaming and yelling, you know. And she would come home and she'd have a glass of wine. Then when we came to Christ, she just really felt like she needed to allow Jesus to produce that fruit and that peace in her life. And so she quit drinking wine. Not because that's a mandated thing for everybody, but that was what God was showing her. Because she was doing it for the wrong reasons. She was trying to produce what only the Holy Spirit can produce through alcohol. And so you don't have to get drunk. It may be that God is wanting to do that, that work of calming your heart and bringing peace without it. And you also have to ask yourself, am I getting the buzz from this? You know, am I, is my mind being altered at all? And you have to ask yourself that question. And if the Lord's telling you to, to 
draw a line in the sand and say, no, I'm not going to have alcohol anymore, then you need to obey him. And for some people, that's what they need to do because it's a struggle for them. And if that's you, don't even tempt yourself. Or if you have people in your life, family members, neighbors, friends, who used to be alcoholics and they would be stumbled by your drinking, you need to be sensitive in that way as well. He talks about revelries. This is a a general term for just crude and rowdy behavior. You know, when I was a kid, we used to throw eggs at cars, you know, throw rocks at cars as they drove by. We'd get up on like the overpasses, you know, and just try to time it perfectly. And we used to hit rocks as well. And I remember hitting this rock one time, just perfect. It hit the street, it bounced, and it just tagged this guy's Cadillac. The guy was going like 40, and he just locks him up. And the stupid thing about it was we're doing it right in our front yard. So we we run in the house. It doesn't take a genius, you know, ding dong, you know. But just rude behavior, crude behavior, rowdy behavior. That's what revelries are. And then he says, those that practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those that practice such things. Practice is a term for habitual behavior. We've already talked about the fact that this is a battle. We're going to struggle with anger or with lust or with overeating or with drinking or tearing people down, whatever struggles you have, you're going to have those and that's going to be a battle and you're going to have to say no to the flesh. But if it's a practice, if it's your lifestyle, if these fruits of the flesh are dominating your life, then you've got to take a hard look at yourself and say, is the Spirit of God in me? Is He in my heart? Because my life is being dictated by the flesh. Maybe the Spirit's not there, because if the Spirit was there, I would at least see some fruit. And so you need to ask yourself that this morning. Do I know the Lord? Is the Spirit of God in my heart? And if you don't know the Lord, man, what a perfect time today to get your life right with Jesus and to invite Him into your life and to say, Lord, I I don't want to live for the flesh. I want to live by the Spirit and I want to inherit the kingdom of God. I I want to have eternal life, but I don't see it. And if that's you this morning, give you an opportunity to do that when we close. But Paul now says in the other corner, he's described the contender with the black trunks, the flesh. These things are evident. And now he's going to describe the contender with the white trunks, the fruits of the Spirit. In fact, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is. Notice it's singular. Fruit. That is because the fruit of the Spirit can only come from one source. Only by abiding in Jesus can we produce fruit. You can't buy it. You can't make it. You can't find it somewhere. 
Only by abiding in Jesus. In John 15, Jesus said, abide in me and I in you and you will do what? You'll bear much fruit. And so we just hang out with Jesus. And we produce fruit in our lives because the Spirit of God is in our heart. And also notice that these byproducts of the Spirit's work in our life are called fruit. They're not called works. What a contrast between works and fruit. Machines can produce works. You can program a machine and it can make just about anything. But machines can't produce fruit. Only trees can. Only God can produce fruit. It's a creation of God. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. And fruit, you guys, fruit is the result of relationship. It's a natural byproduct of the branch abiding in the vine, in the trunk. You see, if you've got an apple tree and that branch is plugged in to the trunk, it's going to produce apples. It doesn't have to work really hard. You don't walk through orchards hearing groanings and moanings. You know, ah, you know, oh, this is so hard, you know. It's just, it's just a natural byproduct of the relationship of the branch in the vine. And the same is true in our relationship with Christ. We produce fruit as a byproduct of our relationship with Jesus. That's why I'm saying, if you don't have the fruits of the Spirit in your life, you have to wonder, is the Spirit in your life? Because it's just a natural byproduct of hanging out with Jesus. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the overriding fruit of the Spirit. Everything else flows out of love. And this word love here is agape. There's different types of love in the Greek language. Different types of love to describe the way in which we would love different things. You know, we don't really have different words, but we say things and we understand what we mean. We say, I love ice cream. I love my dog. I love my wife. Hopefully, you love ice cream a little bit differently than you do your dog, and hopefully you love your dog a little differently than you do your wife. And maybe not. I mean, some guys buy more treats for their dogs than they do their wives, you know? So, did I hit a sore spot? <laughs> But the thing is, is that love is the result of that work of God in our life. And it's agape love. It's unconditional, unmerited, undeserved, unending love. See, there were other words like eros love, which speaks of a sexual kind of love. There was phileo love, from which we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo love was a brotherly love. It was a hanging out with your bros kind of love. But agape love is different. It's unconditional. It's never ending. It's a choice. You don't say, I fell out of agape love. It's impossible. You didn't fall into it either. You chose because of what Jesus has done in your life 
to love people the same way. He talks about peace, or excuse me, joy. He says joy. This is a deep sense of well-being that results from a life rooted in love. See, he doesn't say happiness. That's what we'd like him to say. We'd like happiness to be a fruit of the Spirit because happiness is about my circumstances. Happiness is when I get the new house, when I buy the new car, when I get the new ring, new jewelry, the upgraded computer, you know, whatever. I'm happy for a little while. But joy is despite your circumstances. Joy doesn't look at life and say, yeah, things are going well, so I'm going to be happy. Joy looks at life and says, Jesus over you. I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus and it doesn't matter what's going on. I know that He's in control and He loves me. And that's why Paul, when he was being beat in a Philippian jail, Acts chapter 16, that's why he and Silas could get up and sing praises to God while being beat with rods. Doesn't make any sense. And that's why the whole jail got saved. You want to know why we don't have an impact on our neighborhoods, our communities, our families? Because we have circumstantial happiness. When things aren't going well, we're down in the dumps just like everybody else. But man, you start to have joy in the midst of your circumstances. People start to take notice. Just like the jailer and all those people in the jail in Philippians chapter 16. And the, all the doors of the prison house were open. And guess what? They didn't go anywhere because they wanted to hear what Paul and Silas had to say. That's amazing. When was the last time you saw a jail opened up and the prisoners st- stuck around to hear a Bible study? Think about that. That's what joy will do in our life. And I want joy. I don't want conditional happiness. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus gives us joy. And that, the book of Philippians is all about that. As Paul would later write to that church, fittingly, he would say, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Meanwhile, he was stuck in a prison. A Roman prison this time. Chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. Starved to death. Beaten. Mocked. For what? Because he was talking about Jesus to people. And yet he would tell the Philippians, rejoice. Joy. He talks about peace. This is not peace with God. We already have that as a byproduct of our position in Christ. We're no longer enemies of God. We've been redeemed and restored and reconciled. But we have now the opportunity to have peace of God. The peace of God ruling and reigning in our hearts. Instead of anxiety, instead of worry, we can have peace. And the Bible says, again in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, 
with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing verse. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Those are not ambiguous words. It doesn't leave a lot out there. Nothing, everything. Be anxious for nothing. He doesn't say, be anxious for most, you know, don't be anxious for most stuff, but the big stuff I kind of understand. No, he says, be anxious for nothing. No matter what's going on. But in everything. With thanksgiving. That's key. Being thankful. Because those are the things that God will use to mold and to shape you and to prepare you for eternity. And so with thanksgiving, we make our requests known to God. And there's this amazing peace that floods your heart, that passes understanding. See, when people look at your life and they see that you have peace, they say, why? How? How can you have peace in the midst of this circumstance? And you say, you know what? I don't know. I just give it to the Lord. I can't explain it. Well, yeah, that sounds really good, Ryan, but I tried that and it just came back like an hour later. Well, you just got to keep giving it to the Lord. And there's this amazing peace that will flood your heart. You'll be amazed if you'll take the time in the midst of conflicts and fights with your spouse, if you'll take the time to pray, you'll be amazed at the peace that will flood your home. When you discipline your kids, take the time to pray with your children. And the peace of God will rule in your home. It will rule in your heart. You'll have harmony. It talks about long-suffering. This points to patience over a long period of time, enduring difficulties, enduring difficult people. See, anybody can be patient for a time. Anybody can hold their tongue. Anybody can sort of hold their anger down for a time. But it's like Peter said, Lord, am I supposed to forgive up to seven times? I mean, he thought, you know, this was the pinnacle of forgiveness. Up to seven times? Jesus said, well, that's pretty good, but actually 70 times seven. And, of course, that's just a number that just meant keep forgiving forever. We have to ask Jesus to produce that kind of fruit in our life. Because by nature, I don't know about you, but I'm not a real long-suffering, patient kind of person. I'm demanding. I want things now. I want people to perform. I want people to do what they're supposed to do. And when they don't, I get irritated by it. Long-suffering. Being patient with people due to the love that you have in your heart. Also due to a recognition of how patient God is with you. When you recognize how patient God is with you, it's like, maybe I ought to reciprocate some of that. talks about kindness. This is love expressed in genuine sensitivity to the feelings and the needs of others. It's just common kindness. And as Christians, we ought to be kind. We shouldn't be the person at the restaurant giving the waitress or the waiter a hard time. We, we shouldn't be the person that's just rude, you know, if there's a line at the store and, and we're giving, you know, dirty looks and, and we're rude to people. and We should be kind. I'll tell you what really drives me nuts 
is when you're in the grocery store and you're in a long line and then, you know, here comes Mary or John from break and they open up their register and they ask the person behind you to go ahead of you. And it's like, and now you're there and they get checked out and you see them get in their car and they drive away and you're still in line and you're thinking this isn't right. That ticks me off. And I want to tell the checker that I've been so close to just saying, hey, I was first here. I've been waiting for like a half an hour while you smoked your cigarette or ate your donut or whatever you were doing back there. You know, but no, you just got to hold your tongue. And man, I'm not very good at that. I'll tell you where I'm really bad about is on the phone with like credit card people. Because I figure, you know, I'm never going to meet this person. And they just start taking you off and they start saying stuff and they won't do what you need. And, you know, it's the automated thing. And by the time you get to them, you're really upset. And it's real easy to just not be kind to those people or the, you know, cell phone techs or computer techs or whoever. You know, you figure out this guy's living like in, you know, Indonesia or something, you know, barely speaks English. It just drives you up a wall. And one time I did, I finally said to the guy, I said, you know what, bro? I said, I love you, man, but I cannot understand what you're saying. You've got to put somebody on here that I can understand because I don't have time. You know, I didn't want to hurt his feelings, but, you know, we need to be kind. We need we need to to love people. If you're at a, you know, at a, an establishment and you're up ahead of a guy that's walking up the sidewalk and, you know, hold the door open. If you see somebody that's disabled, help people. You know, we've got to take our eyes off of ourselves and start to be kind. It talks about goodness. This is a love that's revealed in seeking what is best for others. That doesn't come natural. I want what's best for me. Looking out for number one. Talks about faithfulness. This is love that enables a person to be loyal and trustworthy. It's a, an attribute, a characteristic of doing what you say you're going to do. In your work in your family, in ministry, you should be a faithful person. People should say, oh yeah, Ryan said that. I know he'll do it. Ryan said he's going to be here. He'll be here unless he's dead or he would have called me. That's the kind of people we ought to be. We shouldn't be flakes. A Christian flake is an oxymoron. Shouldn't be a flake. You shouldn't sign up to do a ministry or to go on an event with the church and then not show up. That drives me nuts. And that happens a lot here, the church. And that ought not happen. Pick up the phone. That's what it's for. And if you sign up for a ministry, do it. Just because people don't tell you how great you are all the time, or the parents didn't, you know, get down and kiss your feet and tell you how great you are, hey, just do what you said you were going to do. And when God frees you up to do something else, then do that other thing. But be faithful, you guys. And we all fail in these areas. But be faithful. Be gentle. This is a love that is manifested in humility. It's meekness. It's power under control. It's the ability to hold your tongue when you know you could shred a person up. You know, that's that's not a good attribute that you're really good with your words. And you can win arguments and you can shred people up. I mean, I'm a sarcastic person. Things come into my mind. And 
I can say things that are very hurtful. But, and I, I do it more than I should. And we shouldn't do that. We should be gentle. Meek. Self-control. This is love's ability to not allow self-serving interests or pleasures to override what is ultimately the best for God and for other people. Self-control is to be able to control your emotions, your lusts, your desires. Self-control, you, you know, you shouldn't go out and buy that car that you can't afford. You shouldn't buy that thing if you've got to put it on a credit card or you've got to, you know, starve Peter to pay Paul or whatever the thing is. Have some self-control in all facets of life, but that's kind of what comes to mind maybe in our society is spending. And I mean, it's a thing that we, we can all struggle with and we need to learn how to, to be self-controlled in, in that way. And I love what Paul says in verse 23, against such there is no law. Paul's been talking about the law. And he's been saying that we're free from the law. The law doesn't hold us under its bondage anymore. And people will say, well, if there's no law, then people are just going to do whatever they want and they're just going to, you know, feed the flesh. And Paul says, no. These things are beyond the law. When Jesus is in your heart and when you have a relationship with Him, these things are just a natural byproduct. It's not gritting your teeth. It's not trying really hard. It's not self-discipline. It's not beating yourself like the Hindus that go down to the Ganges River and they throw in their babies, offering them to some god. And then they whip themselves with chains and whips trying to appease the gods. You don't need to do that. Jesus is in our heart. And the fruit of the Spirit just flows forth quite naturally. Well, very quickly, the conquest. Verses 24 through 26 talks about a few things here. He says, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus died to remove the penalty of sin. But I must identify with that death on a daily basis in order to break the power of sin in my life. See, Paul talked about it in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, he said. It's an identification. It's an understanding that Yes, He was crucified, but I need to be crucified with Him. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Reckon your old man to be dead to sin, that you've been crucified with Christ. That word reckon is an accounting term. It means add up the figures and come to a logical conclusion. And the logical conclusion is that you no longer have to serve the flesh anymore. But you've got to remind yourself of that every single day. And the more you deny the flesh, the easier it becomes. The more you deny those things. And the more you say yes to the Spirit, the easier it becomes. 
And the flip side is true as well. The more you give in to the flesh, the more difficult it is to say no. The more you deny the Spirit, the easier it is to continue to deny Him. And His voice begins to soften in our heart. His conviction begins to lessen. And that, you guys, is a scary, scary place to be. We need to pray, God, keep my heart soft. Keep my ear attentive to your voice. Crucify the flesh daily. Identify with Jesus on the cross. He says, walk in the Spirit. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So he says, hey, if we live in the Spirit, that is if the Spirit lives in us, which if you're a believer... He does. Romans chapter 8 makes that very clear. The Spirit lives in your heart. And so it's kind of like Paul saying, hey, if the Spirit's there, He's living in your heart, how about walking with Him? There's a concept. It's kind of what Paul's saying. If He's there, how about walking with Him? How about relating with Him? How about letting His power be the guiding force and the thing that dictates your practice instead of your flesh. If we live in the Spirit, that's our salvation. Let us also walk in the Spirit, our sanctification. That process of holiness by which God is making us into His image. I love Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will. Hopefully that's true. That we delight to do God's will. And then he says, and your law is written within my heart. See, it's not effort on my part. It's not just gritting my teeth and, you know, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, cowboying up for the Lord. That's not it. It's just Jesus living in me and me abiding in Him, spending time with Him in the Word of God. As Colossians says, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Are you letting the Word of God dwell in you richly? If the fruits of the Spirit are not a part of your life, it may be because you're not letting God's Word dwell in your heart richly. He says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is a practical example of how these truths can be worked out in our life. Let us not be self-focused, conceited, arrogant. Let's not provoke one another. Let's not envy one another. These are just practical things that Jesus will do in our life as He works His Spirit out in us. And so we may be thinking, well, how is this going to be made true in my own life? I mean, I want it to be true. But like Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. So how can we make it true? Well, Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. And that word, be filled, it's in a tense that would be ongoing. It means to be being filled constantly, continuously. Jesus told us that there's three ministries of the Holy Spirit. He said, first of all, the Holy Spirit will come alongside of you. The word is para, from which we get parachute and paramedic. It's to come alongside and to give 
aid, to, to lead you, to help. That's the first ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not a believer here today, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's coming alongside of you and He's leading you to Jesus. But then Jesus said in John 14, the Spirit will be in you. It's a different preposition. He was alongside of you. Now He's in you. And we know that that happens when we give our life to Christ. The Spirit of God comes into our heart. And He lives with us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. But then there's a third ministry described for us by a third Greek preposition where Jesus told His disciples, He said, look, receive the Holy Spirit, John chapter 20. And He breathed on them and they received the Spirit. And I'm a person that just takes the Bible literally. They received the Spirit. But then He said, now I want you to go to Jerusalem. And I want you to tarry there until I come upon you. till the Spirit comes upon you. And that word there is a P. It's a different word than, a, than alongside, than in. Now he says upon. It's that third work of the Holy Spirit. You can call it whatever you want to call it. A filling, a baptism, a second blessing. Call it whatever you will. But I believe that there is a baptism of the Spirit for victory in our life, as we've talked about this morning, victory over the flesh, and also for ministry, a power in ministry. What did Jesus say? He said, when the Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. When the Spirit comes upon you in power, and you can see in the book of Acts, time and again, believers who would be Filled with the Spirit. They already knew the Lord, but now they were receiving a filling of the Spirit. And so I want to invite you guys this morning. Whether you've asked the Holy Spirit to fill you to overflowing before or not, I'm going to invite you to receive that this morning. Because it is a continual thing. And if you've never received it, you need to ask for it this morning. In fact, Jesus told us in Luke chapter 11, you know that passage where He says, ask, seek, knock? What's He talking about there? He says, if, you, if your son asks you for food, you're going to give it to him. And if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give you the Holy Spirit, that thing that you need to live the victorious Christian life, to serve Jesus with power and not in your own strength. He'll give you that if you'll just ask. That's what He says. Just ask. It's not an emotional experience. It's not like you're going to do something weird. The Bible says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. You, you receive the filling of the Spirit not to do weird stuff, but to do cool stuff. Like deny the flesh. Produce fruits. Serve Him. We receive the Holy Spirit not necessarily to speak in tongues, but maybe more importantly to hold our tongue. That's a much more powerful evidence of the Holy Spirit. Hey, if you have the gift of tongues, praise the Lord. But that's not what it's all about. And so what I want to invite you guys this morning to do is to invite the Holy Spirit to come upon you in power. A baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that if you'll ask, He'll come. The Bible says that God will never give us something we don't need. 
He only gives us good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in Heaven. He will never give you something that isn't good for you. And so if you want the Spirit to come upon you, if you want a fresh fill, if you want a new work of God in your life, if you want, as Jesus said in John chapter 7, to have rivers of living water flowing forth from your life instead of venom and hatred and envy and bitterness and wrath and lust, if you want to have the presence and the power of God pouring out from your life, let's stand this morning and ask Jesus Ask Him by His Holy Spirit to come and to pour out His Spirit upon us in a fresh and new way. And so this worship team is going to come up. And if you'd like that, stand with me and we'll ask Jesus to do that.